Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 36, Iconoclasts and Iconophiles. What is an iconoclast, you say? Well, stay tuned and I will tell you. Really what it is, it's just someone who really, really hates icons. In this episode, we will discuss what happened to the Roman Empire after the Arab invasions. And for the first time in his life, the emperor was able to stop and to take a deep breath and examine the state of the empire. The Roman Empire was now smaller, weaker, and poorer. But most of all, it was defeated. The Roman Empire had stood for over a thousand years and was home to the Eternal City, but was no more. What was left was a shell-shocked civilization. Everyone around at this time was born and lived in a time of mass invasions and massacres. From the Persians to the Arabs, the great empire and the true faith were on the losing side. The very soul of the Roman Empire changed at this time. There was a new empire and a new faith on the stage. And for some reason, their God was angry with them. Just like God had been angry with the Jews when he had them expelled from the Holy Land, that's how these people felt. The people had to do some serious soul-searching. Obviously, God was punishing them. But what sins was God punishing them for? Was it because they strayed from the path of Jesus Christ? Or was it something else? This episode will follow the events that ultimately separated the Byzantine Orthodox Christians from the Catholics in the West. It's very important to stress that the Roman Empire from this point on was basically Greece. Everyone was speaking Greek, and the religion was Greek Orthodox, and the territory was made up of mostly Greek lands. But they were still Romans. They never stopped looking at themselves as Roman, and their enemies referred to them as the Romans. But in the western provinces of the empire, in places like Gaul and Germania, the Germanic tribes were uniting, and started to refer to themselves as Roman. The Frankish tribe in Europe had conquered all of the other tribes, and united the lands into a unified force, challenging the size of the western Roman empire. When they unified into a single entity and took the name Holy Roman Empire, this was a direct challenge to the Greeks. The last we spoke about the Romans, they had just defeated the Arabs in 717 in the epic siege of Constantinople. The Arabs fell back and never recovered. And while Emperor Leo III, only 32, had an empire in desperate need of rehabilitation. He instituted a new set of laws called the Akloga, which didn't go well with the nobles or clergy, but was very popular with the peasants and lower-class citizens. You can guess where this is going. One of the laws in the Akloga was to end the practice of mutilating ex-emperors and just simply kill them instead. We know that Emperor Leo III was a eastern origin man and had some influence from islam and judaism and in both religions it is sinful 
to worship idols. And Christianity in the Roman Empire at this time was all about idols. Idols, icons, crosses, holy paintings. It was everywhere. People would worship these objects and pray to them. Some people would even shave off pieces of these icons and they would eat them or mix them in with water. And they thought God was in these idols. Icons in the empire just got out of control. And it was clear to some, this is what was making God angry. Meanwhile, in the Arab Caliphate, politics were souring, and civil war was on the horizon. While the Umayyads fought to suppress the rebellions popping up all over the Caliphate, and the Abbasid Revolution was growing underground. We already covered the Abbasid Revolution in the last episode, but we will briefly summarize again. The Abbasids were known to have recruited soldiers and officers from from every ethnicity, which was a stark contrast from the Umayyads. This made the Abbasids very popular in the provinces outside of Arabia. However, this led to many different ethnic groups within the Caliphate to break away and start their own independent Caliphate, or Emirate. Everything was fracturing from within, and Arab supremacy was coming to an end. But from the perspective of the Romans, the threat was as great as ever. They didn't know about the communication problems between the caliphs and their governors. This period can be compared to the end of the Persian Wars, when the Greeks defeated the Persians in 479 BC. We know now that the attacks were over, but the Greeks thought they could return at any minute. Back then, they formed the Athenian League, but with the Greek But would the Greeks react the same way this time and grow stronger than ever before? In the western provinces, Charles Martel took control of the Frankish kingdom in 718, seizing power from a pagan king of Frisia. Charles Martel allowed the missionaries to enter Frisia and preach the gospel to the pagans. This was the beginning of a long career for Charles Martel and he would lead the Franks in an epic battle against the invading Muslim army from Spain. It is these two battles, the Siege of Constantinople in 717 and the Battle of Tours in 732, that are given credit for stemming the tide of the Arab conquest. In 725, Leo III gave a sermon about the excessive worship of idols in the Roman Empire and how this sin eroded the relationship between God and the Empire. In 726, on a small island called Thera, modern-day Santorini, a giant volcano erupted, and this caused massive earthquakes and sent tsunamis rushing out across the Aegean Sea. The tsunamis were devastating to most of the coastal cities within the Byzantine Empire. God's wrath was being unleashed upon the Romans, and the emperor was determined to find out why. Leo came to the conclusion, and not entirely on his own, that icons were the cause of their suffering. It was already a popular idea in the empire that the worship of icons was blasphemous. There had always been a group of Christians who thought icons were prevalent in the Catholic Church, but what could they say? The empire was so successful at everything it did, surely God thought it was okay. But not anymore. Now that the Romans were on the losing side of the war, They had to question the worshipping of icons. 
And in the years leading up to Leo III's reign, icon worship was on the rise. In these dark times of the empire, people needed a place to turn and find comfort, and having an icon in your house was like inviting Christ himself into your home to protect and to watch over your family. It just so happens that the church was selling most of these icons for profit. So they loved it. They needed more income, now that the Arabs had taken away most of their land and taxable income. Leo decided to set an example by removing a solid gold statue of Christ on top of the front gate to the imperial palace. This was a very difficult task, and it took some time, because people in the streets saw what was happening, and they cried out in horror and shock. These small protests quickly evolved into riots, and eventually the mob swarmed the officer in charge of the statue's removal, and they beat him to death. News of the statue's removal spread fast, and riots broke out everywhere in the city. The people loved their icons, but they were also under a lot of stress. The world was crumbling before them, and this was just one last thing that pushed them over the edge. This kick-started the first iconoclasm, which lasted from 726 to 787. And there's also an east versus west approach to this as well. The eastern provinces had a large monophysite population, which believed Jesus was of a single divine nature and should not be drawn. The monophysites were also heavily influenced by Judaism and now Islam. They hated images of their prophets being drawn. However, the Christians in the west always had icons, and they adored them. And Leo III was from the East. In 727, the Italian city of Ravenna revolted. The unrest was encouraged by Pope Gregory II. This rioting caused a lot of trouble for the empire, as many of these exarchs were overthrown by locals and declared independence from the Byzantine emperor. Leo III was suddenly facing the loss of his Italian territories and began negotiations with Gregory. Leo needed to regain control over this territory. One of the cities in Italy that revolted and never returned to the empire was the Kingdom of Venice. Venice, for the next 1,100 years, would remain independent. In 730 CE, Leo III took iconoclasm to the next level and had all icons banned and ordered them to be destroyed. He not only outlawed icons, but also made it punishable to be convicted of preserving them. This decree forced many religious leaders to flee the empire with their icons. Most of them went to Italy. At this point in history, iconoclasm wasn't that bad and there was no real persecution. Even though the edict passed by the emperor wasn't that harsh, the Pope decided it would be best to voice his objection to the new policy by writing several angry letters. Leo was furious with Gregory. The clear line of authority was God, Emperor, Pope, King. This insubordination was not to be tolerated. So Leo sent his fleet to Italy to have the Pope arrested. 
The Navy wasn't even across the Adriatic when Pope Gregory passed away. This robbed Leo the opportunity to show the West that he was in charge, not the Pope. Ironically, the next Pope was also named Gregory. And he also loved icons. In fact, Gregory III held a council and decreed that anyone caught destroying icons was to be charged with blasphemy. Leo began frantically shuffling bishops around in the empire to stack the clergy on his side of the debate. Up until now, Rome had been part of the empire. During the 730s, the Arabs continued their raids into Anatolia. They never went away, but were not the major threat that they were in the 7th century. The Arabs were getting a little more aggressive, and they were leading up to another major assault. At the same time, Leo III had a strong alliance with the Khazars, a steppe tribe north of the Black Sea. And the Khazars frequently raided the Arab Caliphate, keeping them occupied and unable to launch a full-scale attack against Constantinople. In 737, the Arabs defeated the Khazars in several key battles and were finally able to focus on Constantinople with their full strength. In 740 CE, at the Battle of Acreonin, Emperor Leo III was involved in his last major confrontation. It all started when Arabs launched a two-prong attack into Anatolia, raiding the Roman farmland and burning down villages. Leo took his army and confronted one of the Arab armies in a full-pitched battle. He faced an army of approximately 20,000 men and killed over 13,000 of them. Not personally, of course. The small Arab armies continued to raid into the countryside, but they were no longer able to take any cities after their defeat. The Arabs eventually retreated back to Syria. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. In 741, Emperor Leo III died leaving the throne to his son Constantine V. He was born in 718 and crowned Caesar in 720. Because the only sources we have from this era were written by later emperors who loved icons, everything we know about Constantine V has to be taken with a grain of salt. For instance, the historian Theophanes says that when baby Constantine was baptized, he defecated in the holy water. Did this really happen? Probably not. But this is a defining trait written by Theophanes to smear Constantine. And you better believe that everyone in the empire who didn't believe the story had at least heard about it. Constantine V had the same iconoclastic views as his father, but he acted upon them with the full weight of the imperial office. Constantine held a church council, and had all of his bishops agree that the icons had to go. 
It was the only way for the empire to get back in the good graces of God and escape his holy wrath. The council outlawed icons and used the military to purge all iconophiles. Constantine strongly believed in what he was preaching, but he made many, many enemies doing so. In 742, Constantine V led his army on his first campaign against the Caliphate. Unfortunately, his ally Artabastus mutinied against him, chasing the emperor and his guard to the city of Amorium. While Constantine was in Amorium, Artabasus marched on Constantinople and claimed the throne for himself and immediately restored the icons. This led to an open civil war. In 743, Constantine V led his armies in three separate battles against the traitor Artabastus and then led a siege against Constantinople. In 743, Constantine made it through the gates and into the capital. And as soon as his men stormed the palace, they captured Artabastus and his sons and had them all blinded with a red-hot iron. With the traitors out of the way, he resumed his role as emperor. In 746, Constantine invaded Syria and captured the city of Germanica, which was his father's hometown. He brought the captive Christians out of Syria and resettled them in Thrace, on the European side of Constantinople, where they would be safe from further Arab persecutions. Now this seems like a noble deed, and I'm sure it was. But it also allowed him to farm the barren lands that had been abandoned long ago. In 747, the Roman fleet defeated the Arab navy off the coast of Cyprus. And this was a turning point for the Byzantine navy. They were finally taking back control of the trading routes in the Mediterranean Sea. The Roman Empire was back, and they were a force to be reckoned with. In 750 CE, the Abbasids seized power from the Umayyad Caliphate. In 751 CE, the Lombards invaded Ravenna, taking northern Italy away from the Byzantines forever. This is where the Pope finally slipped out of the Greek sphere of influence and into the Frankish-Germanic sphere that was building in the West. This was good for the Vatican, as the Frankish rulers were Catholic and they would protect the Pope, whereas the Patriarch and Emperor in Constantinople were theologically at odds with each other, especially concerning icons. The province of Italy was lost because Leo III and Constantine V neglected the territory. They just couldn't be bothered with the West. And now it was gone forever. In 752, Constantine V invaded the Abbasid Caliphate, relocating more Christians within the empire. And by removing the Christians from the Caliphate, Constantine wasn't just gaining new farm labor for the empty land in the Balkans. He was also depriving the Arabs of their tax revenue. And you just can't help but look at the way these rulers treated the peasants and realize... They were nothing more than resources to these empires. Resources to be shuffled around and exploited. 
In 754, Constantine V convened an ecumenical council in order to pass more measures against icons, as well as to persecute iconophiles, that's the people who love icons. The council decrees were harsh, but Constantine V went even further in his persecutions. His persecutions mostly affected the rich bureaucrats, monks, and nuns. He was confiscating land from all over the empire. He had the monks and nuns brought into the Hippodrome where they were forced to marry each other and start procreating or face blinding with the iron poker. I don't know if the marriage was the only thing that took place in the Hippodrome or if the consummation was also taking place in the public. And were the stands filled with spectators? (laughs) Oh my God! That's one of my favorite paragraphs I think I've ever... Constantine was taking money straight out of the church and placing it into the military, where he needed it most. At the time of Constantine V's reign, he was really popular. He subsidized bread to the citizens of Constantinople, keeping his people fed, which was a Roman custom right up until Heraclius. He was also winning battles, which made him very popular with the army. In 755, Constantine started campaigning in the Balkans against the Bulgars. Most of the Christians being resettled from Anatolia and Syria were placed here, along the border. He fortified the Roman borders in preparation for invasion, which triggered the Bulgars to declare war on the Romans, as this violated the current peace treaty. At this point in time, the Bulgar lands were along the northwest coast of the Black Sea and were getting dangerously close to the European side of Constantinople. The border of the Roman Empire used to be the Danube River, but now the Bulgars were permanently settled south of the Danube. In 756, Constantine sent over 500 ships up the Danube River and his armies overland to attack the Bulgars from the north and the south at the same time. At the Battle of Marcalea, the Romans defeated the Bulgar armies. Constantine came back from the campaign with a lot of gold and Bulgar hostages. In 759, Constantine raided Bulgaria again and probably thought he was going to get away with it, again. However, Khan Vinek of the Bulgarians attacked the Romans in the mountains and inflicted heavy casualties. The Romans were defeated and the survivors fled as fast as they could. These mountains were very steep and forced the Romans to march single file. Unable to properly form up and defend themselves, the Romans suffered great casualties and began a mass retreat back to their country. Khan Vinek was merciful and let the Romans go home, but this decision angered the Bulgars and he was overthrown for his weakness. In 763, the new Khan of the Bulgars, Khan Telets, raided into Roman territory. Constantine V sent his army to crush them. He loaded almost 10,000 cavalry units onto his ships and sailed them up the Danube. It is here that Constantine V won his greatest victory of his career at the Battle of Anchialis. On June 16, 763, the Roman fleet unloaded the army 
and gathered around the lowlands. The Khan was on the high ground, and instead of holding his ground and preparing for a long battle, the Khan marched his army into the lowlands and met the Roman army face to face. The two armies charged into each other and started hacking and slashing. The fighting started in the early morning and didn't end until nightfall. It was a long, drawn-out and horribly bloody battle that defeated the Bulgars, but also cost the Roman armies dearly. The fields were littered with chopped-up corpses and wounded men. This war cost both the Bulgars and the Romans heavy damages, but neither side was able to deal that critical blow that finished them off. The Bulgars were still there. Constantine V had several wives who died on him. This left him multiple legitimate sons with multiple legitimate queens. His first wife, the Khazar princess who changed her name to Irene, died, and he later married Maria. She died. And then Eudokia. His many sons would later become a problem, as there were a lot of legitimate contenders for the throne. In 775... Constantine led an expedition against Khan Telerig when he died suddenly, on September 14th, at the age of 57. Constantine V died a grandfather, and left the empire a lot stronger than he received it. Despite being popular at the time, and very successful in battle, he was probably the most hated emperor written in the histories. And this is a direct result of his iconoclastic policies. The historians did literally everything they could to tarnish this man's name. Constantine V's firstborn son was Leo, from his mother Irene the Khazar, and he was 25 years old when he donned the purple, and could have already had tuberculosis. He was very sick when he became the emperor. In 778, Emperor Leo IV oversaw a massive invasion of the Abbasid Caliphate and carried back lots of plunder. He captured many Christian peasants and forcibly relocated them back to Thrace along the Bulgar frontier. The next year, in 779, the Arabs sent a retaliatory strike into Anatolia, and Leo IV fought them off successfully. Leo was very successful in his campaigns and very aggressive too, despite being... A sick man. In 780, Leo IV set his target on Bulgaria and marched his armies north. However, he must have caught a fever or something because he died suddenly after departure. Historians attribute this disease to tuberculosis. His wife Irene was left to watch over their son, Constantine VI. Now, Leo IV started off as an iconoclast like his father and grandfather, but his wife Irene was an outspoken iconophile. She just loved icons. And before the end of Leo IV's very short reign, he ended most of the persecutions against the iconophiles. Kind of reminds me of how all the Roman emperors were really, really harsh against Monophysites. And then Justinian marries a Monophysite and suddenly the laws get a little bit easier on them. 
When Leo died, he left a lot of brothers looking at the throne. He also left behind a very, very ambitious wife, who was the mother to the legitimate heir to the empire, even though her son was just a child. This is where we're introduced to one of history's most influential women from the Byzantine era. This is where we meet the very first soul-ruling empress of the Roman Empire, Empress Irene. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.